You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Thank you for joining us. And as always, if you wouldn't mind hopping over to iTunes and leave us a review, that really helps us out. I'm Kurt Whithelm. My co-host is Katie Vernoy, and we are talking today about the recently released 2018 American Psychological Association Guidelines for Working with Men and Boys. Apparently, the last hundred years of talking about psychology and therapy being male-focused, this now creates a new subset of men are maybe more fragile than we thought, or at least that's (laughs) what this article suggests that they should be. So we're going to talk through these guidelines today, give our opinions on these, and have a little bit of probably disagreement along the way. Uh, we'll dust out hashtag Team Kurt and... <laughs> and hashtag Team Katie. I, I think that we'll be using hashtag Team Kurt here a little bit more often. But All right. we will include this document as well as probably some other things that we're going to reference throughout today. In our show notes, you'll be able to find all of that on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. So, Katie, you saw this. What was your kind of initial reaction to that before we get into each of the guidelines? I don't know that I had a strong initial reaction. I think that it makes sense that after going through and talking through some of the folks who haven't traditionally been studied and creating guidelines for those, that it's important to kind of tease out what is more specific to boys and men. I think that when something is seen as a standard, it can feel very generalized and it can, and it isn't actually, I don't know what the right word is. Maybe it's, it's almost confining, I think, is what you're talking about. Well, I think it's it's somewhat confining. I think I was actually thinking that it's it's hard to differentiate between what is kind of all people and what is more specific to boys and men. I think there's also been a huge transition in how, or maybe even a better word is transformation on how we view gender and the roles that we play as individuals in our society. And so I think to me, it makes sense that that's, that this has been accomplished as far as what's specifically in the document. I, I didn't, you know, kind of have a a preference or an idea of what would be included, but I think it does make sense to, to parse out and, and tease out what is more specific to the different uh, demographics that are in our society. So to me, it makes sense. I guess short answer makes sense. Okay. And if there's anybody who's like me listening through this episode, whenever we refer to the boys and men, I'm automatically picturing the band boys to men. Uh, (laughs) But a little bit of background on this article, the task force to create this article was created in 2005. This was published in 2018. This kind of flies in the face of the idea that men are simple. Um, Apparently we're a lot more complex than was originally thought. (laughs) Uh, This follows after several other APA guidelines throughout history. One of them that I kind of glanced through a little bit was the 2008 guidelines on working with women and girls. Um, There's also one from the 1970s that was focused on working with women and gender bias. So the APA does have a long history of creating guidelines for working with separate and, and different populations. 
But the first thing about this article that really kind of stood out to me was they identified a number of different definitions before getting into their guidelines. And the first one that really struck out to me was this definition of masculinity. And since this article did take so long to write, I was kind of surprised that the definition of masculinity that they're using comes from a 2007 article, which in my mind, 2007 is such a long time ago. And they, they make a passing reference to that there's multiple masculinities in a 2016 article, but it seems like so much of the rest of this article is based on things that were definitions at the time that I was in grad school. Mm-hmm. So it's, it just feels like it's starting out outdated from the very beginning. So let me read the definition so that people are on the same page as they're listening and they don't have to like rush back to the show notes immediately. But it says in this article, there is a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, including anti-femininity, achievement, a shul of the appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. Masculinity is about achievement. This seems to be a problem. Well, the, I think the first word, the anti-femininity word, is is something to look at as well. But I think it's a pretty broad definition. It it doesn't, to me, seem like it's so far off base. But I know that there is, you know, a, a complexity and a, and a diversity to what masculinity is or what the different masculinities are. How would you change the or redefine masculinity? Like, what do you think is missing in this definition? I think that it needs to be shown more as a continuum of inclusive behaviors or exclusive behaviors, not like, here's a binary definition. You know, here's what's masculine. And so this is where I say that they make that passing reference to that there's multiple masculinities. Mm -hmm. I would like them to work from that, not from achievement is a bad masculine thing. Well, I don't think they've said that achievement is a bad masculine thing here. They just said this is what people identify as masculine ideologies. So in your achievements throughout the world, you're like, here's my masculine side. Um, People have said I'm more masculine because I'm more ambitious and and achievement oriented. So yeah, I think that that masculine is actually a part of who I am. I don't think I'm completely feminine. I, I do believe that those things are not seen as negative. And in fact, as a society, we've, we've collectively decided, at least in the United States, that achievement is the most valuable thing and that being achievement oriented is good. So I don't see this as being a, something where people are saying it's negative to be achievement oriented. It's saying that that is traditionally more masculine. This is where I, I completely agree that you are very achievement focused. I, I tend not to see that in terms of a masculine or feminine sort of thing. And maybe this is just my California identity <laughs> out here. But I think that a lot of my problems with aspects of these guidelines come from it seems to be more about the behaviors than it is about whether or not it's masculine or feminine. And that when we apply these principles to people of a a different, you know, ideology, whether it's masculine ideology, feminine ideology, that it's more about the problematic behaviors than it is about boys and men. Would you agree that boys and men traditionally, maybe not in 2019, but but maybe traditionally have been more achievement focused and have been expected to be more achievement focused, more, you know, kind of eschewing the appearance of weakness, adventure, 
risk seekers, you know, more likely to engage in physical violence? Do you feel like that is a fact or do you think that that's not a fact? I think that it's a fact, but I also think that it's changed. And I think it's changed pretty quickly in the last few decades that where we now see people like Layla Ali, who's long since retired, but professional boxer, a total badass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that these are things that, if, you know, MMA fighters now, Ronda Rousey is not considered, you know, out of the norm by doing what she does. That She's somebody who, at least for certain people, was widely embraced for what she was able to accomplish. I'm not totally into MMA, so I'm sure that there's <laughs> examples, but she's the one that was such a cultural phenom that it did transcend into even super casual outside fans. I don't know if that's true, though. I think that I still get pushback for being achievement-oriented or ambitious. I feel like there is still pushback. And granted, you know, I'm not exactly the same generation as you, although you'll try to claim it. But I think it's that piece of women, I think, are, are, are doing more things that have been traditionally male-dominated fields or male-dominated areas or more traditionally considered masculine. But I don't know that that means that it's more accepted as a gender-neutral behavior or quality. I still feel like for a lot of folks, there's still that distinction. It's just women are kind of veering that way. And then we've also got kind of the, the men who are, are, are becoming, you know, more open to things that have been more traditionally feminine, whether it's different jobs or different, you know, kind of expressions and behaviors. So I don't know that it, I feel like the distinctions or the definitions have so dramatically changed. I feel like they've shifted. I feel like they're evolving and kind of merging a bit, but I don't feel like it's like, oh, well, now that there's, you know, female MMA fighters that are total badasses that we are now, it's it's now a feminine quality. Like, I don't feel like that's not, I don't feel like the definitions have changed that much. So, you know, I, I think in, in my mind, as I'm hearing you, part of this is the absence of achievement or the absence of desire of achievement than a feminine quality, which I don't think holds true because for the last several decades, we've embraced Bart Simpson as an underachiever and proud sort of (laughs) idea. So this idea of achievement in and of itself of being entirely a masculine quality, and this might be my privilege of being a man and being in this world all along, but I, I don't see it as being necessarily a gendered or a masculine feminine sort of idea. I think that... When we look at achievement or success and the types of accomplishments that are praised or are looked upon favorably, when we look at those things, I think there is still a bias that those things are the male domain. You hang out with me. So you hang out with a very ambitious woman. (laughs) You have a very successful and ambitious wife. I think to me, you're impacted by that. And you're also raising a a very headstrong, amazing daughter. So I think to me, there's going to be a a slight bias towards that in your mind, which I love. I think that's amazing because you're not seeing that as primarily masculine. But I think for me, having been knocked down so many times and having been told that I was too big and too much for so long and having lots of women come into my practice who have, who have had that happen. 
I think that regardless of what the, the actuality is of how ambitious women are or how achievement-oriented women are, mm-hmm. it is still primarily been a, a male domain, a masculine domain. So it sounds like we're not going to agree on this. And so I want to make sure we get to the rest of... <laughs> we, got, we got a lot to cover today. We have a lot to cover. And we've now just talked about the definition. We haven't even gone to the guidelines. But so before we jump into the guidelines, I want to ask you another question. Do you believe, what is your response to these guidelines? And do you think we need them? My overall impression, it misses the mark. Do we need it? Sure. Yes. Okay. I, I, I do. I do think that, especially as we talk about men seeking therapy, that they're as women tend to become more and more prevalent. I, I believe that there are more than half of the clinicians working in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that men seek therapy for different reasons than women. And men don't come into therapy or don't return to therapy because of bad experiences. And that there is a space to better train clinicians, both men and women, of the unique things that bring men into therapy and how they want to be responded to. So I just think that in some ways, this article misses the mark and it tends to pathologize behaviors that apparently I see as kind of gender neutral Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it kind of misses some of the unique things that men would face. And th- there is some good stuff in here too. I don't want to say that this is a completely bad article, but there's some places where it just feels like it misses. Okay. Well, let's dig in then. Cause I think for me, I'm not seeing it as pathologizing. And so I, I really am interested to see where you're finding that. Cause I don't see it as pathologizing. I see it as identifying areas where society is negatively impacting men and the the pieces that therapists, psychologists have to be looking at. But I don't necessarily see this pathology, the pathologizing of masculinity as a whole. I see it as looking at pieces of it. Like they're like this gets toxic or this is something where men have been treated a certain way and they're not able to fully express all of the masculinities because of what society is doing. So I don't see it as like masculinity is toxic. It's that there is, there are these pieces. And I think, you know, the big pop culture phrase now is toxic masculinity, but there's, there's a a small portion of masculinity that has been become toxic because of how society is interacting with men. So that's how I'm viewing a lot of these things. And it sounds like that's not what you're saying. You're saying like being a man's bad. And so we have to do therapy different. And I think that as far as the toxic masculinity thing goes, I don't, I don't think we're that far off because if it was a woman doing the same things, we would look at it as toxic femininity. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the fringes of the you know yeah. ends of human behavior. And for anybody who's been through a psychopathology or a diagnostic class where you start to diagnose yourself with everything, this is kind of those personality disorders of like, there's common and shared behaviors, but it's when you get out to the extreme ends, that's when it's problematic. Yes. And I think that that's where this is starting to, it it nods to that, but it doesn't acknowledge that it's those ends where the problems lie. And because they don't go there, they don't make that step to define, like, this is the extreme end that we're talking about is bad, that it feels confining to all men as being like, well, I don't do that, but you're grouping me in with that. And maybe I don't see that because I do see a lot of the the sentences that that phrase it as 
most men are not violent. However, most violence is perpetrated by men. So it, it's really saying we're looking at the portion of men who are committing violence and the fact that violence is, a, is more of a male dominated area. And so I think to me, I don't see it as saying all men are this way. It's saying here are some of the issues that are more specific to men and here this is how we deal with them versus all men are bad. And sure. so, and so yeah, I see it more as a, as a nuanced thing. And it sounds like you're not feeling that as a man reading this. I feel like you're gendering me right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we will get to that a little bit later in the guidelines. But uh, in the interest of time and moving this episode along, guideline number one, psychologists strive to recognize that masculinities are constructed based on social, cultural, and contextual norms. And my very first reaction to this is, no, duh. Like when you look at the <laughs> individual factors that go into somebody's lives, where they grew up, who they grew up around, that that's going to help create the definition of who that person is. And we should really look at all of these factors in determining how it impacts that specific individual. And so this is the important step of looking at intersectionality. And well, I, I mean, think it's it, just, it's just good therapy. It's good therapy, but, but we know you and I both know how much bad therapy happens because people don't acknowledge this. And this actually speaks to what you're talking about with the definition where this is saying, yeah, there is a, an overarching definition of masculinity from 2008 or seven or whatever it was, but all these other factors go into it. So they, they've already responded to your first complaint by saying, we need to re recognize that all these, all of these other things interplay. So yeah, it's a no duh, but for some folks, especially for folks who've been in practice for a million years and they didn't learn all that stuff initially, I think this is a good place to start. Now it's a no duh, but I think it's a good place to start. So if this is a good place to start, go back and listen to our episode from a couple of weeks ago <laughs> about discrimination against men and being, you know, in your solo practice and taking on somebody because you had a bad experience with men before. The first guideline totally conflicts any of those gut feelings that therapists are encouraging, you know, other therapists to be like, no, just tr trust your gut, cancel that session, men are violent. Well, some Most men are. Most men are not. <laughs> So it does, you know, it's good therapy. I see your point. I'm, I don't have such a strong opinion on this first guideline. I, I think that it's fairly solid. So Okay, so let's go to guideline number two. Psychologists strive to recognize that boys and men integrate multiple aspects to their social identities across the lifespan. No duh, right? <laughs> Again, no duh. The, the way that my five-year-old son looks at men and what men are supposed to do is different than the way that I'm going to look at it as a professional in my midlife. Yes. Yes. So we're in agreement. This is important to acknowledge, but we know. Agree okay. to agree. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Guideline number three. Psychologists understand the impact of power, privilege, and sexism on the development of boys and men on their relationships with others. So I think we're three for three on no, no duh. Yes. But I think these are things that many therapists and potentially many psychologists have not really thought about. I think that more training, more continuing education, the, the graduate programs are including these things. But I don't know that 
I had anything about power and privilege in my, even in my, my cross-cultural class. Like, I feel like for me, these are things that I learned later because it wasn't discussed as readily as it was, as it is now. So I think this is an important one, even though it's a no-doubt one. Okay. This is also one where I think that it starts to lend a little bit of credence that this is not just men leading these ideas for other men, that Mm -hmm. the power, privilege, and sexism does exist both ways. Now, there might be a biological and evolutionary sort of thing that both sexes ascribe to being in kind of like men should look and act this way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the example that I'm bringing up is who do you want to be your man? Do you want it to be Dwayne Johnson or do you want it to be Michael Sarah? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a pretty uh, distinct, uh, distinct choice there. So I I want to hold those two kind of people those uh, throughout this episode because what we're saying is that Michael Sarah is just as manly and masculine as Dwayne Johnson. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So so with withholding that that comparison, what is the what what is the key point you're making in this in this guideline? That nobody agrees with me that Michael Sarah and Dwayne Johnson are the same level of man. And this is the same, lesson, same level of masculinity, the same level of masculinity that, okay. but this is now where this article is saying we need to hold different masculinities up as being equally valid. Okay. So you're saying that it's, it's not realistic. There's too much ingrained biologically, evolutionarily, whatever it is. Societally. Where, societally where the rock is going to be seen as much more masculine than Michael Sarah. Yes. I mean, <laughs> Michael Sarah was phenomenal in Molly's game. I would love to see several more roles of him kind of outside of that arrested development sort of thing. <laughs> but we, we do have a bias mm-hmm. that we have to own that even the intentions of this guideline is, is we're still going to reject that because yeah, Michael Sarah, I, I know nothing about him outside of kind of the roles that he's played, but we we would see him as an individual. We at least hope that we would. But when we're like, who who's the man here? And you have Dwayne Johnson as your next client, then you're you're definitely going to be like, I'd need to bring a whole different, you know, here, here's a man coming into the session now. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. And I think to me, it's something where society doesn't change unless we hold ourselves to a standard of, I don't know what the right word is. I mean, in the, in the article, it says being able to, to have more of a gender egalitarian attitude, non-sexist constructions of masculinity. I think to me, being able to, to expand how we look at masculinity and maybe they're not I think if we're looking at it as more of a spectrum, maybe Dwayne the Rock Johnson is more masculine than Michael Sarah, but but I don't think that they're that doesn't mean that he's better. Right. And I think that's where I, I feel like there's there's not a or that he's worse, like that he's more of this evil monster toxic masculinity man. Like I don't feel like that's the case. I think for me it's it's 
really opening up what being a man can be, what, what being, you know, having these different types of masculinities are okay. I think that's something that we can do as therapists because we provide these safe spaces for men to come and speak about their experience and what they want. And I think being able to open up these ideas that Michael Sarah is not expected to be Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. And that he's not discriminated against or pushed down or bullied for not being. And in our hypothetical situation where Michael Sarah is your client, you would encourage him to be confident in where he's at on this masculine spectrum that I wish was better defined in this. Guideline number four, psychologists strive to develop a comprehensive understanding of the factors that influence the interpersonal relationships of boys and men. Four for four on no duh. (laughs) Guideline number five, psychologists strive to encourage positive father involvement and healthy family relationships. Is this another no duh? I, I think it is. And I didn't spend enough time going through the guidelines for working with women, but is there an equal emphasis on the father or the mother son relationships as well? There's not in this article, but again, it falls more towards no doubt. And, you know, I'm actually kind of happy that this embraces the, the role of that fatherhood relationship sort of thing there. All right. So guideline number six, psychologists strive to support educational efforts that are responsive to the needs of boys and men. I am still picturing boys to men every time you say that. <laughs> this is one where I, I really, I don't know that this is something that feels right to me. Because a little bit later on in the guidelines, they talk about that, you know, one of the ways to work with boys and men in therapy is that it might be shorter sessions. Well, if we're going to acknowledge gender differences in schools, there's not a recommendation here that boys should have shorter school, you know, study sections, that they should be able to take more breaks. Things that contribute to the major differences in diagnostics and ADHD, which the article does reference, but that if if we're really looking at differences between boys and girls here and the unique factors and needs of boys, it still tends to me to feel like this is a little bit pathologizing about hyperactivity and activity issues that boys Mm. face in a confined schoolroom setting. And especially, you know, early on, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade, the school system more designs towards girls than it does towards boys. Boys are being a lot more directed towards sit down, hold still than girls. And I see this in my son's classroom of the redirective behaviors are often directed towards boys needing Mm -hmm. to be confined. So there's that aspect of it, but I think there's, which I think it is important to acknowledge that we may need to overhaul the educational system to better address each individual's needs. Cause I think there are also girls who maybe are more quietly distracted or whatever that are not getting education. They're just not, you know, they're not performing these externalizing behaviors that are the squeaky wheel. But I think there's also a big piece in here about bullying and I know when we were talking before the episode, that part really, you know, got your, got your goose. So <laughs> what, well, tell me a little bit about what, what it says about bullying here that was bothering you. Because I think for me, I think that we do recognize that physical bullying is often happening by boys. Bullying was a part of how 
I started my practice in working with both targets of bullying and aggressors. Yes. Uh, and you were a bully, right? I was both a bully and a target in when I was being raised. So I do have both a personal experience with this and a professional experience with this. Mm-hmm. This article tends to define bullying in ways that exist within the male bullying, and it minimizes the ways that females bully each other, which is a lot more relational. Yeah. Um, I very much disagree that the prevalence rates of bullying are as different as this article claims because of the way that things are defined. Yeah. And I read something recently. I have no idea where it was, so it could be fake news, but I, I, it was something to the effect of girls are meaner than boys because the relational bullying are just, is just so it like eats at your soul. (laughs) It's so bad. And I joke with some of the parents of middle schoolers who come through my practice that the worst people on earth are ISIS, seventh grade girls, (laughs) Al-Qaeda. (laughs) In that order? In that order. (laughs) I think that to address bullying only in the school system, though, is also completely misguided. Yeah. This episode's recorded before the outcome of yesterday's Super Bowl, but at the end of the Super Bowl, you have whoever whoever won yesterday going around, beating on their chest, talking about how great they are and how much better they are than everybody else. Oh, and beforehand, probably talking trash about the other team, right? Exactly. This is something that is not only rewarded in our society, but it's embraced. I think, I mean, certainly we've seen an uptick of embracing bullies in our, uh, in the United States. Uh, But I think it's something where the section we're looking at is about the educational system. So I think that it is an appropriate place to talk about bullying, but I think it's limiting to only talk about it in the educational system, because I think boys and girls and, and other genders who bully or are bullied um, as children are often in those same roles or in the other role, you know, like they've, they were bullied as a kid and now they're bullying as adults or bullying later on, those, those kinds of things. I think it can really be pervasive across the lifespan and so much, there's so much workplace bullying. Certainly we know there's really bad managers and supervisors that, that bully their, their employees. There's you know, people that bully each other. So I think, I think it is a limited perspective, but I don't know if it's wrong because in the section, we're really just talking about the educational system in the boys to men um, <laughs> article here. And, and I think, so it does fit here. It's just, it, it seems, I think the problem that I'm seeing that you're having with it is it, it only talks about boys. It does not compare it to girls and it doesn't, you know, and what the ways that girls typically bully. And it seems, more pathologizing because in the article where it's talking about education for boys and men, it's talking about the issues that are specific to boys and men. So you can see I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but Mm -hmm. I do believe that we need to have a more expanded view, but I don't know if this is the place to have it. Well, I I looked at at this also as something else that's been in the news recently, and that's the uh, Gillette ad about defining new masculinities, which I think pairs very well with this conversation. And there's one particular point in that ad where there's a dad who goes over to two kids who are roughhousing, fighting, and he goes over and corrects the boy's behavior. I just wish that there was a at least a passing reference in the guidelines here to say, this also exists outside of the school system. Okay. 
Fair enough. We are now to guideline number seven. Psychologists strive to reduce the high rates of problems boys and men face and act out in their lives, such as aggression, violence, substance abuse, and suicide. This feels like a no-duff for me, but I think this one is the one you have the biggest problem with. There's, so I have, I have a master's degree in criminal justice. This is an area that I studied, I went into from after the time that I was licensed. So was really looking at this. I do feel that I have some ability to speak on this with a level of expertise. All right. There's a lot of statistics that come out of criminal justice that are completely skewed. And, okay. and so when I look at this with a critical eye, this is one area where the field of psychology, uh, the research in psychology is a lot more robust. Unfortunately, criminal justice just seems to be quite a bit behind. It's a lot more sociologically based, so things aren't as easily causation based as opposed to correlation based. So when I look at things like in the very first sentence of the rationale of this, boys and men commit nearly 90% of violent crimes in the United States. Sure, that's a, that's a statistic that's out there. But looking deeper at it, I think that what is meant is that boys and men are convicted of mm. 90% of the crimes. So already I, I have a, a problem with a lot of the statistics that are here. And I feel like this is one of those areas where you made reference to this at the beginning of the episode that it groups men into that toxic end a lot more readily. And there is published research that continues to promote bad research and bad statistics in this that helps to group nonviolent men in with violent men when we're talking about statistics in this way. But you only read a portion of that sentence. It says, although the vast majority of males are not violent, boys and men commit nearly 90% of violent crimes in the United States. And that's the DOJ from 2011 statistic, which I I get more men are convicted of nearly 90% of the violent crimes. So 90% of violent criminal offenders are men. But there's two problems there, and I think there are two problems worthy of addressing, is the fact that probably more men are committing violent crimes, and definitely more men are going to prison for it or going to jail for it. And so to me, both of those are problems worthy of addressing. But I think if you leave out the first part of the sentence that says, although the vast majority of males are not violent, yes, I can see that that statistic looks horrible, but it's saying we are now zooming in away from all men to those who commit violent crimes. The last sentence in this article is, therefore aggression may serve as a public behavior wherein men can prove their masculinity either against a worthy rival or against those considered unworthy of the label man in order to bolster the confidence in their masculine identity. Which again, yeah, out on that toxic end of behaviors, I, mm-hmm. I agree with. But this isn't most men. And if we're needing to have this hanging participle from the first sentence across every statistic (laughs) in every part of this paragraph, it really does skew that we, we need to keep coming back to out of violent men, this is behaviors that we see, not looking at men in, in in the framework of they are violent. Okay. I think that I agree with that, that sentiment. I think for me, there are, there's also, you know, a scale, a range, a a continuum of violent behavior. I do see my nieces punching each other. So I do know that (laughs) that girls are also violent, but I think that there, there are, there's a socialization that allows men to 
seek physical conflict more often than women. Boys will be boys. That that it's okay. There's roughhousing that seems more appropriate for boys. And I think it's that shifting. I think the question I have, and maybe this is not something that's still applicable for for younger boys today, but for the generation I grew up in, the generation you grew up in, those things, what shifts and how does it shift? Because I, I, I continually have heard boys will be boys, but I, the men I hang out with are not physically violent. So I know that that shifts where it goes from roughhousing and fights and that kind of stuff to more socially appropriate behavior where we're not beating each other up, except, you know, like on sports arenas and those kinds of things. So I think, and, and then war zones. But I think there's this piece of somehow that shifts. And I, as a woman, I don't know what that is because for me, it was always wrong to be physically aggressive. That was always seen as unladylike. So how does how did that shift or how does that shift generally? Maybe, maybe we'll be more specific. How did it shift for you? I don't think that I've ever been in a physical altercation fight, a sporting event. I was a wrestler, a football player, a baseball player growing up. I don't think that I ever went into a fight, a match, a game. I'm doing this because I'm a man. You know, I think that there is a a biological drive that is part of this too, that's being, you know, kind of not ignored or not acknowledged, I guess, in that... Mm -hmm. When I feel myself tense up in situations, even today as an educated adult, that I don't stand up to be the protector because I'm the man. It's something that's biologically driven to, I'm a six foot tall dude who could probably handle this situation. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's something where it's, I don't know that it's a choice always. I I think that there's, again, a biological perspective here that's not being acknowledged. Not being acknowledged by who? By the guidelines, as far as... It's saying that it's all socialized. It's not acknowledging that men are typically bigger and stronger. Not always, but typically bigger and stronger and more able to protect. And oftentimes, especially in fraught situations, that's protection might require physical violence. Right. I do think that this has changed. One of the things that I've been doing lately is I've been listening to a wonderful podcast called Hardcore History. And several episodes worth of looking, at least where I'm at in the series, looking at the way that soldiers were treated during World War I. And especially those who abandoned the front lines were often met with treason and were killed as punishment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took a couple of years, even into World War I, for the generals to recognize, hey, maybe we should rotate our troops off so that way they're not running away because of what eventually became post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So I think that, you know, some of this is in those hyper-masculine roles, you know, war, that this is where acknowledging changes in those areas, you know, we don't fight warfare and treat people who've been in warfare the same that we did a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's in kind of those extreme sort of examples that some of these changes really do have to be okay. If tough manly soldier who's been on the front lines says it's okay to cry, then it makes it for anybody else who's on, you know, a, a different part of the masculine spectrum, be able to embrace some of those feelings as well too. 
So it does take some systematic change and acknowledgement, but it really sometimes does come at acknowledging what each individual's factors are, which are in some of the no-duh guidelines. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying. I think to me, I still believe that this guideline is important. It sounds like you would want at least a rewrite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to acknowledge that there are biological factors and that the the masculinity that gets toxic where men who are constantly getting into fights or become physically violent toward their partners or those kinds of things, that that is, that's where it becomes a pathology and not to pathologize physical aggression completely because there are biological and societal needs for it and expectations that are still slowly being changed. Yes. Potentially. Okay. I agree with that. I don't see any problem with that. Guideline number eight, psychologists strive to help boys and men engage in health-related behaviors. This one is pretty well written. Um, I think that, you know, this is not just the go to the gym and lift weights sort of recommendation, but looking at health as an overall sort of like go to the doctor and make sure that you're not just ignoring things. And when my wife listens to this, she will remind me that I need to schedule a dentist appointment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think overall, it's kind of, you know, not just being like, yeah, I can tough through this injury, that it really mm-hmm. is about addressing health overall. I, I think that this one's pretty well done. So it's going against the whole walk it off thing. A little bit. Yeah. All right. All right. Guideline number nine, psychologists strive to build and promote gender sensitive psychological services. I think this one is actually fairly important. I think that it it's something where this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, like teasing out what is general psychology and what actually is more specific to men and to boys. And I think what for me stood out is really looking at different dynamics that are different for men than they are for women. And I know that this is something that I've, or I've had conversations with colleagues about before. And I think what for me is helped is really acknowledging that masculinity is an important aspect of diversity. And so supporting that and nurturing that is, is helpful. You read this differently though. I did. And as I'm looking at it again here, I do see the importance of this, but this is what I was referring to at the beginning of the episode or earlier in the episode about, it's not about shifting where people are on this masculine scale, but it's to help them acknowledge that being in a different place on the masculine scale is okay. And I'm afraid that people are going to interpret this in ways that say, manly men are bad. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I think that in, in looking at this, that we can help people to acknowledge and embrace what their masculine identity is in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're, if we're bringing back, you know, Dwayne Johnson and Michael Sarah, that Dwayne Johnson can be, super manly and be okay with that and not be toxic and to use yeah. things in a, in a healthy way. And the same for Michael Sarah, that I don't want people to interpret this as you're too manly. You're not, you're, you're too far out on that masculinity scale that as long as you're not engaging in anti-feminism or doing those things, that it's okay to embrace being a man without being anti-feminine. Okay. And I think that is important. And I think there's there's pieces of this that may stand out for different folks that it's looking at 
the concept of masculinity and, and making sure that it, it's not pathologized because I think it can be very easy in a, a me too environment to make those assumptions that what has traditionally been masculine includes really awful and illegal behaviors. So I think to me, being able to parse out what is healthy masculinity and what's toxic masculinity, I think could be very important. I think also the continuum and the, the, the acceptability of the whole continuum, I think is, is also really important. And I will again say that bad behaviors are bad behaviors, whether it's by somebody who's super masculine, super feminine, or somebody in between. And yeah. if we're really embracing non-binary, you're an asshole if you're an asshole. Like there <laughs> But I think that there's there needs to be an acknowledgement. I think this was in a previous guideline, but there needs to be an acknowledgement that the boys will be boys and the the socially acceptable sexism, sexualizing women, those things has been something that's been societally accepted and in the mainstream. And that is shifting. And that is something that is going to impact men. And so things that were seen as okay are no longer being seen as okay. And, and in fact, for men, sometimes even, even socially acceptable behaviors have started feeling scary because, you know, how is a woman going to see this? Or I'm so, I can't even compliment somebody. Like, I think that there is this real need to assess and address what behaviors are okay and not. I don't know that this goes into that completely, but there, I think there is societally pushed behaviors societally accepted behaviors that men have had to face. And I think opening the conversation about it in a way that is gender sensitive, <laughs> I think can be very helpful for men so that they recognize that they don't have to do this thing just because everybody else is, everybody else is trying to sort these things up too. Mm-hmm. Guideline number 10, psychologists understand and strive to change institutional, cultural, and systemic problems that affect boys and men through advocacy, prevention, and education. I agree with the principle. <laughs> I agree with the guideline, right? We, we need to do that. That's what we're saying. We're whole person right. therapists. We're modern therapists. We're going to try to make societal change. And I'm all about advocacy. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that for me, this, the rationale and the application of this guideline are just in the wrong document, that they dedicate a very large space to talking about issues that specifically affect men from minority populations. They spend a significant amount of space talking about transgender people and housing discrimination. To me, those go into either minority guidelines or to uh, transgender guidelines that would be a separate document. And I think they have those separate documents. I think that it's important to acknowledge some of the intersectionality, but I think there are some larger advocacy issues that are more specific to men that I think they may have left out. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> kind of summing everything up. If, you know, we, we had kind of our initial reactions at the beginning of the episode. To me, a lot of this is look at the individuals that you're working with, help them to embrace in a healthy way, wherever they may fall, uh, help them advocate for themselves, help them be okay with where they're at and to recognize the societal pressures and the biological aspects that take over their lives and help them be cool with it. (laughs) Help them be cool with it. I like it. 
So we have a lot of stuff that we talked about that we'll be putting in the show notes. That's over at mtsgpodcast.com. And we'll definitely be continuing the conversation in our face group, the Modern Therapist group. So go find us there. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 